Welcome back to our study of the book of Ephesians. Uh, today we're going to be in chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, go ahead and open them there. Ephesians 5, 1 through 14. And the title of this sermon is Rise and Shine. If you've been following along, uh, you know that we've said repetitively, but I'm going to say it again, uh, that chapters 1 through 3 of this book, Ephesians, were all about the good news of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done in saving us by grace through faith, unifying us with each other as members of the body in a family. Chapters 4 through 6 then turn and answer the so what question. Uh, If chapters 1 through 3 are true, and they are gloriously true, so what? How then should we live? Chapter 4 began by calling us as Christians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He reminded us of our unity in the body. He reminded us of our diversity in the body. Then he gave us some specific commands of what Christian behavior looks like in response to Christ's gracious gift of salvation. Today, that theme continues. Uh, Over the next two sermons, we'll be looking at what the Christian walk looks like. Uh, In the front half of chapter 5, we'll see that Paul calls us as Christians to walk in love, walk in light, and walk in wisdom. Walk in love, walk in light, and walk in wisdom. Uh, Today we're going to be hitting the first two sections of that. So let's dive into the text. This is the word of the Lord. Ephesians 5, 1 through 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the, war- in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Our two main points for today are point one, walk in love in verses one through six, 
And then walk in light in verses 7 through 14. So point one, walk in love. I know that we picked this up at the end of last week's text. And in many ways, it was a summary of all that Paul said in chapter 4. But it's also very much continued on into today's text. Look again at what Paul writes in verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In 1 Thessalonians 2.14, Paul calls churches to imitate other churches. In various texts, he calls Christians to imitate him, Paul, as he imitates Christ. But this is the only place where he directly calls Christians to imitate God. Have you ever thought about that? What does it mean to imitate God? What does it mean to imitate God? I mean, I know as a kid, I often tried to imitate my favorite sports heroes. I would wear their jerseys, their shoes, and would even try to imitate their motions. And while it was typically Michael Jordan we were trying to mimic on the court, I remember one day taking batting practice with a couple of my friends in baseball. And we were trying to imitate certain Major League Baseball players. We knew that Fernando Tatis, senior, not junior, we knew that he swirled his bat around in a very particular way before taking a at-bat. We knew how Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire came to the plate how they swung. We knew how Hideo Nomo strangely pitched the ball. Dennis Eckersley before him. We tried to imitate all of it. How did we know all of this? Well, because we were students of the game. We watched a lot of baseball and baseball highlights. Because we loved the game. There was joy in watching these guys and trying to imitate what made each of them great. This is where Paul couches all of this in our text this week. All of the commands to walk. Be imitators of God. Try to be like Him. Be a student of who He is. Find joy in watching who He is and following in His footsteps. Be imitators of God. Well, how do we do that? Through His Word. We come to know God through His Word. He reveals Himself to us, shows us His character. He also, as we saw last Sunday, gives us very specific commands of how we're to live. Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as His beloved children. Like Father... Like son, we are God's children, and we're being called to, to, to be like him. Now, some of you may be thinking, we can't be like God in every way. That's right. If that were true, he wouldn't be God. He alone is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He alone is perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful. But we can imitate his character. So, what does that look like? Verse 2. And again, 
This is a summary verse for the end of chapter 4 and the next several verses. He says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. If we didn't catch this last week, walking in love is clearly defined, isn't it? It's defined by Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. So love like Jesus. Love like Jesus. Sounds great, but what does it mean? How did Christ love us? By giving himself up for us. He sacrificed for us. He gave himself up for the benefit of his people. He also sacrificed for us by dying sacrificially in our place. Again, we can't die to atone for one another's sin, but we can follow Christ's model of love. One commentator reminds us that love involves giving ourselves away for the good of another. Love that. Love involves giving ourselves away for the good of another. It is not just sentimentalism. It is not merely feeling sorry for someone. It involves sacrifice and action. We need to hear this in today's world. The word love is used so much and with so little definition or understanding. We talk about loving pizza. All you need is love. Or there's the popular cultural slogan, love is love. But here's the truth. Not everything we call love is love. Love must be defined. And Christ is our measuring stick. He sacrificed and acted on our behalf. He loved us. While Paul will call husbands to love their wives like Christ loved the church in a chapter later, in 525, This is specifically a call to all of us. We're called to walk in love like Christ. 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Love involves action, not just talk. One other detail to point out here before moving forward. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Who did Christ give himself up for? Us, Christians. Those who have repented of sin and trusted in Christ. Now, who did he give himself to? God. Do we understand this? He gave himself up to God. While I love Narnia, this is one of the aspects of the atonement that they got wrong. Jesus wasn't a sacrifice to the white witch or to Satan. He was a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Look at what Paul writes in Romans 3, 23 through 26. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that, here we go, pay close attention, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, Jesus died so that God the Father could be just in his righteousness and the justifier. Here's what I want us to see and take a hold of. Jesus' sacrifice has horizontal implications. He died for us. And it also has vertical implications. He was a sacrifice to God. And this is how our love should work as well. It has horizontal implications towards those here on earth. And it's a sacrifice to God vertically. Walk in love to the glory of God. Okay, so what does this look like? If, we're, if we want to imitate God, how do we live? As with last week, there's more do's and don'ts and explanations that Paul gives us. First, if you want to imitate God, here's what you don't do. Look at verse 3. He says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Our first triad of sin Sexual immorality. It's the word porneia, which includes sexual activity of any kind outside of a committed marriage relationship. This is one of those sins that most people become Pharisees with, right? How far is too far? How close can I get to the line without crossing it? How can I find a loophole here so that I can think of myself as righteous and others as sinners? This is a terrible way of thinking about holiness. Yet, we do need to define the word clearly. What is sexual immorality? I think the most clear and understandable definition of sexual immorality that I've ever seen is in Kevin DeYoung's book, The Hole in Our Holiness. And he says this. He says, The simplest way to understand porneia is to think about the things that would make you furious and heartbroken if you found out someone was doing them with your husband or your wife. If someone shook your wife's hand, you would not be upset. If someone gave a casual side hug to your husband, it probably wouldn't bother you. A kiss on the cheek or even a peck on the lips in some cultures might be appropriate. But if you found out another person had sex with your wife or saw her naked or touched certain parts of her body, you would be furious. If you found another person made out with your husband or talked about sexual activities or made certain gestures, you would be heartbroken. Why? Because these are all activities that are appropriate for a married couple but are inappropriate when practiced outside the lawful relationship of a man and a woman in marriage. He then goes on to say in simplest terms, sexual immorality as Jesus and Paul and all the biblical writers understood it 
is sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Porneia, sexual immorality, Paul says, must not even be named among you. Most commentators believe that the next two words in this list actually fall under the banner of sexual immorality. Impurity and covetousness, or coveting someone outside of marriage. Isn't this wild to think that this isn't just a modern issue? It was rampant in Paul's day too. Remember that Ephesus was a wicked and sinful city. At the center of the city was the temple of Diana, where sexual perversion was encouraged and even exalted. Kent Hughes tells this story about what he calls the cookie jar syndrome. He says a little boy's mother had just baked a a fresh batch of cookies and placed them in the cookie jar, giving instructions that no one touched them until after dinner. But it was not long until she heard the lid of the cookie jar move, and she called out, My son, what are you doing? To which a meek voice called back, My hand is in the cookie jar, resisting temptation. (laughs) Friends, we live in a world full of cookie jars all around us, on TVs, billboards, magazines, computers, iPhones, and in real life. And when we, like this little boy, think that we can stick our hands in, we're playing with fire. This is dangerous to our souls. We're not in Ephesus, but we are in America. And it may be worse here. God has called us to better. Paul says that these sins should not even be named among you as is proper among saints. We're called to imitate God's character. And these things are not God's character. He's a God of covenant, permanent, faithful love. When we commit these sins, we lie about who God is, don't we? The second sin triad or don't list is in verse 4. He says, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place. Filthiness refers to obscenity, ugliness, or deformed speech. One commentator calls it oral filth. And this next word is amazing. You've got filthiness and then foolish talk. It's the word moralagia, moronic talk. Proverbs 15.2 says, The tongue of the wise commends knowledge. But the mouths of fools pour out folly. Moronic talk is sub-Christian. Again, it portrays something about God that just isn't true. God is not moronic. He's wise and truthful. When we are characterized by foolish talk, we lie about God instead of imitating him. Crude joking seems to be a subset or in some way connected to foolish talk. It's a word that means vulgar speech. And I want to be clear here. 
The Bible isn't against humor. Hear that loud and clear. The Bible isn't against humor. Proverbs 17.22 says, A joyful heart is good medicine. Ecclesiastes 3.4 says, There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. So humor in general isn't what Paul's condemning here. But he is warning us against vulgar joking. Vulgar jokes take what is profane and sinful and make it normal and playful. It it takes what's immoral and makes it a laughing matter. We become callous and even desensitized to things we should be ashamed of and broken over. Paul says that these sins are out of place. I don't know about you, have you ever seen someone that's out of place? I've never seen or even heard of this happening, but imagine someone showing up to a funeral in a clown costume. That'd be out of place, awkward, even offensive. That's what Paul's saying. If you're a Christian, you're to reflect the character of God. Wearing these sins is out of place. It's offensive to a holy God. It's not fitting. So these are the don'ts. But look at how Paul contrasts them. He says, but instead, let there be what? Thanksgiving. Similar to last week. Instead of corrupting talk, we're called to build up, remember? Here, instead of moronic, vile joking, let there be thanksgiving. One commentator rightly says that it is difficult to both give thanks and to sin at the same time. I'm going to come back to the why of thanksgiving in just a moment, but for now let's move on. Paul calls us to imitate God. Then he gives us two contrast lists of what godly people don't do. Then he gives us two concrete warnings. Look at verse 5. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So Paul's first warning is that these people won't go to heaven. All of the blessings described in Ephesians 1 aren't theirs. Now, I want to be clear here. Christians commit these sins. Christians commit these sins. What he's condemning here is a lifestyle that persistently gives oneself to these sins. Remember, the context is walking or your way of life, the normal way you do things. This isn't describing someone who sins, repents, struggles, and then is sanctified all the while trusting in Jesus. This is a lifestyle that's clung to. And notice that Paul characterizes this type of person as an idolater. This is important. Sexually immoral, impure, covetous, or or greedy... These are all sins where God has said, I've provided for you all that you need. Don't eat from that one tree. 
And in each case, the sin involves placing one's desires above God and above his direct command. It's the opposite of thanksgiving, right? Brian Rosner defines the greedy as those with a strong desire to acquire for themselves more and more money and possessions because they love, trust, and obey wealth rather than God. Do you see this? The solution and the antidote for idolatry isn't just gritting your teeth and trying harder, is it? It's seeing God as all-satisfying. If we genuinely believe that God is all-satisfying and good, we won't look anywhere else to be filled. We won't look outside of what God has provided for us. We'll be content in Him. We'll be thankful. The alternative is idolatry and putting your faith in something other than God to fulfill your desires. Paul's warning here and in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, and the Apostle John's warning in 1 John 3, 7 through 10, all say essentially the same thing. Those who persist in these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. But I do want to point out the grace and transformation that are available in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul immediately follows these words with this. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. He says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Repentance and renewal and change is possible through Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. If you're stuck in these sins, turn from them and turn to Christ. Cry out to God. Ask for help from God's Spirit. You can be made right. You can be sanctified and grown more into the image of God. So, Paul's first warning has to do with heaven. And his second warning comes in verse 6. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, referring to the sin list that he's just given, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God. There is a just penalty for sin. Sin offends a holy God who, yes, is patient with us. Praise God for that. But His justice will not be mocked. For those who persist in sin and rebellion against the God of the universe, there will be justice because He's a good God. He doesn't just look the other way. The wrath of God will come. And here's the good news. For those who have repented and believed in Jesus, He bore the wrath reserved for us. That wrath just didn't magically appear or disappear. Jesus absorbed it on the cross for us. Praise God for that truth. 
We can turn from sin and trust in Christ. He bears the wrath that should be directed at us. So walk in love. Point two, walk in light. Verses 7 through 14. Walk in light. I'm going to have to be quick here. Look at verses 7 through 10. He says, Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So if the first command was to walk in love, the second one is in verse 8. We're called to walk as children of light. But here's what I want us to see. Our actions actually flow from our identity. Our actions flow from our identity. Look at this language in verse 8. He says, at one time you were darkness. He doesn't say at one time you were in the darkness or you were walking in darkness. He says you were darkness. But because of Jesus and the power of the gospel, we changed. He says, but now you are light in the Lord. Your identity is changed and new. And and notice that you're not light in and of yourself. I'm not light in and of myself. You are light in the Lord. It's His light that shines through you. And this is key. Then, the command. So, you are light in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of light. In other words, in Christ, your identity has dramatically changed. Therefore, be who you are. Live, walk in light of your new identity. This is the core of Paul's message, is it not? Chapters 1 through 3, this is who you are because of what Christ has done. Chapters 4 through 6, walk this way. And I love verse 9. He says, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. If you're a gardener, you know how this works. Plants need light to survive and to thrive. They need good soil and nutrients and water. But without light, no fruit. Paul says that the fruit produced by light is good and right and true. If you walk in the light, this is what gets produced in and through you. All that's good and right and true. In other words, this fruit is the result or or the byproduct of faith in Jesus Christ. Not a prerequisite for faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? This is what Jesus produces in those who follow him. Again, good, right, and true fruit are all characteristics of God himself. Walking in the light reflects God's character. Paul has told us that we have a new identity. He's told us to walk in the light. And then in verse 10, he gives us a concrete example. Look at this. Verse 10. 
and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The word try isn't actually in the Greek text here. It's simply the word dokumazo, which means examine, test, prove, even scrutinize. One who walks in the light discerns what is pleasing to the Lord. Well, how do we do that? Through studying who God is in the Bible. Through knowing Him. The goal of every believer is to please their Lord in all things. This is what walking in the light is. We don't avoid sin by asking, how close can I get to the line without sinning? Instead, we ask the question, how can I please my Lord? Christian, Bible study isn't about knowing Bible trivia. It isn't about puffing ourselves up with prideful knowledge. It's about knowing God. It's about knowing what pleases our Lord. And then obeying joyfully. And when we truly do that, guess what? We'll find God and His ways all satisfying. We'll find that pleasing Him is actually the best way to live. Discerning what pleases the Lord is a worthy pursuit. And Paul takes it even a step further. We are light. We're to walk in the light. But look at verses 11 through 13. He says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Do you see the contrast here? For those who are light, fruit comes naturally. But for those in darkness, there are unfruitful works, effort, toil, striving in sin. And I love what Sinclair Ferguson says here. He says, one cannot be light without exposing the darkness. Christians do not, as it were, switch on the light when necessary. They are light, and they are to let their light shine. Matthew 5.16. To his point, this is what darkness exposure is. Living your life distinctly as a Christian, as light. This reveals darkness in others for what it really is. It brings a contrast that makes it visible. In other words, it brings out the true colors of someone. And honestly, this doesn't always produce a great reaction. Sometimes it'll produce hostility. Fair warning. We see this in Jesus' life, don't we? Some fell at his feet and worshipped. Others repented. But others wanted him dead. Exposing darkness through living in the light isn't for the faint of heart, but it's our calling. And we know that in some cases, this exposure actually transforms the sinner's heart. That's what we pray for. Jesus calls us as Christians the light of the world. 
and we're to reflect his character. We do this through quiet and consistent godliness. In closing, and this is such a great lead-in to Easter Sunday, look at how Paul closes this section into verse 14. He says, Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Most likely, this was an early Christian hymn, or even a confession that was used at baptism. And it's based on Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Here's the point. You and I are only able to walk in the light because Christ has risen from the dead. Because he rose from the dead. We are able to arise from the dead as well and to be awake. And because that's true, Christ's light shines upon us. Jesus said in John 8 verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Christians, any good that the world sees in us is the risen Christ's light that reflects off of us. I want to remind us of what Paul told us was true in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 5. He said this about us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. You were dead. You were made alive together with Christ. You have a new identity. Live in light of who you are. Rise and shine. Let's pray.